Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to the New Books Network, Women's History Channel. I'm your host, Nicole Bourbonnet, an Associate Professor of International History and Politics at the Geneva Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies. And I'm joined today by Dr. Carolyn Roosterholz, an Excellenza Assistant Professor of International History and Politics here at the Graduate Institute. Carolyn is author of the book, Women's Medicine, Sex, Family Planning, and British Female Doctors in Transnational Perspective, 1920-70, published by Manchester University Press in 2020. This study explores how a set of British women doctors established themselves as experts and leaders in the predominantly male-dominated medical landscape. The book traces their practical work within birth control clinics in Britain, their engagement with French advocates, and their participation in the development of the international family planning movement. So this is actually a unique interview in that we're actually in the same place. Normally, I'm doing these interviews uh, online. So Carolyn, uh, welcome to the interview. Welcome to the Graduate Institute and welcome to my office. Thanks, Nicole. And thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, So I wanted to start by just asking you to tell us a bit about your background, uh, how you came to this subject, what interested you in the history of birth control more broadly, and in these women doctors uh, in particular. So I did my PhD at the University in Fribourg in Switzerland, where I studied the decline in marital fertility in the 1960s in two different cities, Protestant Lausanne and Catholic Fribourg. And when I studied that, I realized that actually the only female doctors who I studied um, had a more radical view on birth control than her male colleagues. And she was really in favor of, you know, allowing women to control their own fertility, empowering them. And it struck me at that time, but uh, I only had one example, so I just let it there. And when I finished my PhD, um, that's where the personal inter- <laughs> the, academic- <laughs> the academic career, but my partner found a job at the Bank of England in, uh, in the UK, and I applied for a postdoc to the Swiss National Science Foundation. And I needed a sort of a reason uh, to be in <laughs> London for three years. 
<laughs> so then I started to look at, you know, I remember this uh, female doctor and I knew that there were lots of material at the Welcome Collection in London, in the history of sexuality. And I started to be interested in looking whether there was any female doctors involved. And I found these incredible resources and I thought, yes, here it is. I have my subject. And this interest in birth control really has been with me since I would say I was a teenager. As a feminist, I was always very interested in, you know, broadening my knowledge around birth control, sex. Myself had different experiences with uh, contraception. And I wanted to understand a bit more how the field had evolved and who were the main leaders from a historical perspective as a historian. So that's why I get interested in, in the subject. Great. And as you point out in the book, as, as late as 1971, women made up only about 16% of the population of medical doctors uh, in Britain. And yet we see them playing quite a prominent role in the story uh, in the space of family planning activism in Britain and France. So can you tell us a bit about why that is? So what pulls these women to the field of birth control and how do they establish themselves as kind of key actors in these movements? Mm, there were many reasons. The first one is that uh, women didn't have lots of professional opportunities mm. in Britain at the time, especially within a male-dominated medical field. And birth control was only started to be established. And uh, it, was not, um, it was not well perceived by other male doctors, which means there was like an opportunity there for women doctors to involve this field in high number because there were lots of professional opportunities. So one of the things was that their professional career would be, I wouldn't say boosted by being committed to birth control because I think for some it was quite bad for their career. <laughs> but that's why they started to try to professionalize and medicalize birth control to give a bit more, you know, um, prestige to the field. And um, those women doctors who got involved in birth control were committed feminists, also had humanitarian views, sorry, and really wanted to help working class women um, to have control over their fertility because on their daily basis, they witness actually all of the health difficulties mother experience uh, because they had too many pregnancies. And I think some of the women doctors also themselves experienced the fact that they had unwanted pregnancies and tried to right. find ways of, you know, giving access um, to women, giving birth control access to women. So that's how they got involved at the time. And uh, so they tried to medicalize the field and have developed different strategies to do so. Right. And it's kind of interesting because, I mean, as you point out, we usually think of the medicalization of birth control as being part of a, a story of assertion of patriarchy, right, of men gaining increasing control over women's bodies. So I wonder how, you know, what does the insertion of women doctors into this story, how does that maybe change our understanding of this process or make us rethink some some elements of it? Yeah, actually, it really shows that... Um the medicalization was not a one-way process. Uh, women actually, women doctors invested a lot into the medicalization of birth control, but for reason that is more to do with empowering women instead of controlling their body. At the end, they did control women's body to a certain extent because they were like the sound voice and the expert voice and gave advice to women. But really it wasn't a one-way process where male doctors were in charge of, of female bodies, at least not within the contraceptive field, where really women doctors played, I argue in my book, that they were the leaders in birth control. 
Right. And you talk about them being the leaders kind of within Britain, but that they're also building these connections with the French movement and also playing a role in the larger international movement. So can you tell us a bit about, you know, why and how they're connecting with French actors, how they're contributing to the larger international uh, cause at the time? Well, we need to remember that uh, at the turn of the uh, the 20th century, there were this um, increasing activism around birth control, be it from a neo-Maltesian perspective or eugenic perspective. So we have many actors actually gathering together in international sphere, international conferences, discussing about the merits of birth control. And women actors actually joined the discussion. One of them, one of the most famous was, for instance, Margaret Sanger from the US. In Britain, it was Mary Stopes at first, but she wasn't a doctor. So then women doctors specifically trained Mm. actually joined the conversation. And they started to have quite of an important um, expert position in providing a lived experience with birth control because they were basically talking as in the name of their female patients. Mm-hmm. And they were giving this, what we call today, this experiential expertise towards birth control. And that, I found that really interesting. And then, so that was in the, in the 1920s, in the 1930s. And after the Second World War, the same women who were involved before the war in this international circle started to recreate this movement, what we would then be called the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And they were the one who reactivated this network. And here, actually, the, the, the French uh, female doctors uh, thought information about birth control because they also wanted to establish family planning clinics in France, but needed some experience and expertise from someone who actually were successful in setting up such centers. And they relied on British women female doctors' expertise in the matter. Yeah, I really like it how you how you put in the book that the women kind of capitalized on the fact that they were you know assigned to this low status feminist uh, feminine field of medicine and then eventually kind of make it into an asset not only locally but but also internationally, um, which is a I think uh, contrasts also this idea of it being a, a cause solely driven by kind of neo Malthusian or eugenic ideologies. There's also this practical kind of experiential. Uh, angle to it. Yes, and just to add on that, I found it also quite interesting that women would not put their gender at first mm. as a way of, you know, uh, advocating for birth control. They would say they were expert in the field right. instead of saying, as women understand. No, they would say, as an expert, I think that contraception is a preventing form of medicine. And that was also quite interesting the way they played both with their own female experience, the female the, the experience of their female clients, but at the same time with their own expert position. Yeah, and, and I, I remember at one point you kind of talk about how there was almost this kind of uh, gender segregated division of expertise. So there was the men who were developing methods in the lab and then the women who were kind of testing them and then transforming that into a... So there's also just a kind of larger question here of how is expertise constructed and how is how is medicine understood? Yes, exactly. Um, I also really love the chapter. You have a chapter where you look specifically at sexual advice uh, within the clinics. And you note that even though often the kind of ultimate goals or the official language was kind of traditional, some of the methods and ideas were actually kind of progressive or, or even radical, which maybe comes back to that original doctor that you found in, in in Switzerland as a kind of common connection. So can you tell us a bit about, you know, what was traditional and what was radical about that kind of sexual advice that, um, that women were getting in these clinics? 
Well, uh, from the 1930s, there was a broader movement, um, what we call the sex reformer movement, that argued that for happy marriage, um, we need also sexual pleasure. But the vision of sexual pleasure was very gendered at the time. It was like inspired by third theory of uh, sexual development, where, you know, men, men need to have penetrative sexual intercourse to ejaculate, and women need to feel like a vaginal orgasm to show that they were mature enough, because mm-hmm. the clitoridal orgasm was perceived as a form of childish childless form of orgasm. It was for young or little girls. And then when women matured, they would have vaginal orgasm. Mm. So my female doctor, I call them mine because I feel so connected to them. Uh, when, you've read, when you read enough of people's personal letters, you yeah, feel like you like know like them, right? Or own them. Yeah. yeah, so for instance, John Malaison or Helena Wright would actually argue that the clitoris was such an important locus for female pleasure. So that was the radical what I call radical, because they were arguing that the clitoris was very important in the quest for sexual pleasure. But it was also quite ambivalent. For instance, John Malison would argue that the clitoris was very important, but vaginal orgasms still take the precedence. Mm -hmm. So mature women with experience would then have a vaginal orgasm. Or John Malison would ask her female clients to uh, patients to take the lead in sexual intercourse, guiding the husband. But at the same time, they needed to preserve their masculinity. So I remember she recommended that one one patient who never had orgasm should never tell her husband about that. Mm. But she should train him to provide her with sexual pleasure by caressing her clitoris. So it was like this double burden of like emotional labor. (laughs) And Helena White was much more radical in this sense because she really said, you know, women need to get their own pleasure. Clitoral orgasm is the best way to do it because we know from the statistics that that's the easiest orgasm to reach. So she would really encourage you women to take the lead, guide the husband without preserving their masculinity. So we see that it's a very, quite of um, important, I think, moment in the history of sexual advice where we have vision of very radical vision and more traditional norms. Mm-hmm. And so it's like it is a laboratory in the 30s and 40s. And then with like formal training around sexual development and psychosexual counseling, we would go back to much more gendered norms and conservative norms. Ah, interesting. So yeah, we, it goes against this idea we have that everything kind of goes progressively more progressive exactly. and actually it could be a kind of closing down. Yeah, there's a way that this kind of interior warriors, the 20s, 30s is this sort of bubble of yeah like this space. experimentation and yeah yeah exactly I, I see that in so many spaces and it's, it's quite interesting how that then kind of gets shut down and I wonder if that professionalization process almost in a way also feels that you know as it has to become kind of more sanitized exactly more mainstream and one thing that I actually didn't um, approach within my book um, actually now with you know the with rereading some part of it, I thought I should have had more about their own personal experience. Mm-hmm. John Malison was in an open relationship, oh, wow. as was okay. Helen Wright. John Malison uh, underwent psychotherapy herself for many years. So they had a very, you know, personal experience also around their own quest for sexual pleasure. Right. That also informed their practice. Ah, that's super interesting. But it, it but as you say, they almost don't talk, necessarily talk about exactly, that. Exactly, they don't talk um, about that. But you can, you, when I read like different archival material, I found those like, you know, those very personal experiences. I'm pretty sure informed their own views, but then they will then present this experience as fundamental 
Right, because that would have discredited them exactly. in a way, right? Because then it's just personal. It's not this this kind of official official knowledge. knowledge and medicalization. Um, I also really liked you have a chapter where you focus in on the IUD and kind of trace its history and its travels and and kind of follow it from inception through to you know delivery in the clinic. And I wondered what inspired you to do this. You know, a lot of the other chapters are kind of more thematic or kind of following people, whereas here you really focus in on one method. Um, what do you see as the kind of advantage of of looking at that, and what does that story of the IUD tell us about? you know, the larger narrative that you're trying to tell mm. in the book. Well, this was a, a chapter where, where I experimented a bit. I wanted to be a bit more creative. And ha- I had all of these materials around the Grafenberg ring, which I found quite difficult to integrate within the other more thematic part of the chapter. And I thought, you know, why should I just like, you know, trace the history of one technology? And I got a bit inspired by also work, uh, for instance, the biopolitics of the IUDs. Right. And tracing the history of one technology and then showing how this gets or this history resonated within different female doctors' trajectories and how one device could also help um, make those female doctors seem like experts. And that's what I wanted to bring within this chapter, how, you know, it helps me navigate different national, local, transnational levels by having just one example instead of dividing my books according to, you know, the local, the national, the transnational. Mm -hmm. Then with one technology, I could make the connection between all of these different levels of analysis. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's kind of like the pre-story to the, I mean, you mentioned the global biopolitics of the UD by by Chikako Takashita, but uh, she's looking at kind of later versions of the, you know, the Lipis Loop, the Margulies Spiral that really go, mm-hmm. are targeted more at the kind of global south, decolonizing countries, part of that kind of global family planning movement, whereas the Grafenberg Ring is an earlier one and, exactly. and has its own kind of narrative. Yes, and I found it quite interesting to see that what we would call IUDs with all their reputation with, um, you know, um, population policy. In the 30s, the Grafenberg ring was perceived as maybe an ideal contraceptive, one that could give women power over their reproductive bodies in a liberating form of way, instead of from a population policy perspective. But then suddenly they actually, Helena Wright, who tested it, realized that it had too many side effects. So she really took into account her female um, client perspective and patient's perspective, which actually in the 60s and 70s were not really taken into account when they tested IUDs in developing in women into the developing world. So we really see like a shift in perspective. Mm. I would say and really we can see this difference between the sexual reformers from the 1930s and population policies mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I wanted to also maybe ask just a little more about the the kind of French-British connection. Um, you know, what's different about fr- the f- kind of landscape of birth control activism in France versus the UK, and how did kind of thinking about them together um, enhance your understanding of, of the family planning movement in these years? 
I was interesting to take both examples and, and compare them because of the different uh, political situation in, in France and in, in Britain. Knowing that, you know, women got the right to vote in Britain in 1918 and then 1928 for all the women. And in France, it was not um, after the Second World War. So I wanted to see whether enfranchised women had more say mm. and were more active in defending causes for women. And also we had different um, legal situation, whereas in France we have a pro-natalist policy that forbade the sale and advertisement of contraception. And in Britain, it was not formally forbade, but, you know, it was quite discouraged. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to see how those two contexts could have impact women's quest for um, contraceptives. And I really show that we also have two different sort of feminism and right. arguments that women are using to try to increase birth control provision for women. One in Britain based on, you know, the prevention of uh, illeg um, illegal abortion, but also helping women to have a mutually satisfactory relationship with the husband, um, having the desired children, the, the number of children they desired. Whereas in France, it was all about maternal feminism, mm -hmm. really putting women as, as if, you know, being a mother was the destiny of all women. And it was very predominant in the way the pro-natalist birth control movement in France tried to argue for family planning clinics. Right, birth control to help the woman be a better mother exactly. by spacing her children. It's not about reducing the number of children we want to have. It's having better children. Right. It's like to try to you know, increase the birth rate because many women will feel more happy to have families if they can plan their children accordingly. Whereas right. in Britain, it was much more about reducing poverty, trying to increase um, the health outcome for mothers, and reduce illegal abortions. Right, although in a way, I mean... There's always this kind of interesting, I find, gap between what the rhetoric is, and but then the actual realities of the exactly. clinics. and What you can say or not. Right, exactly. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, even if their rhetorics are quite different, it, the kind of practical advice that they're giving still resonates with with the local clinics, you mm -hmm. know, so there's there's still that mechanism for exchange around the details of, of birth control. Exactly, and it's very, you can really see that uh, when you look at eugenic rhetoric that was used by some female doctors, British female doctors, as a political tool, just to gain, you know, eugenic was such a science at that time, it was considered as a proper science, received lots of funding. So in order for the field to be legitimate, within the broader medical profession, they need to tap into this rhetoric too. Whereas in the daily work at the clinic, actually all of the women would be welcome. Right. And as you point out, I mean, they also, many of them are also working in infertility. Exactly. Right? So not just telling poor women to have less children, but also helping them with other gynecological issues with infertility and, and psychosexual like disorders and yeah. Right. So the the clinics look a lot more diverse, I would say, and, and, um, have maybe more to offer than than the actual rhetoric would imply. Exactly. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Carolyn. Super, super interesting. Um, I wanted to just give you some time also to talk a bit about what you've been doing since the book. So I know you have another book that's that's coming out soon, and then you're also starting this new Excellence Project here at the Institute. So can you tell us a bit about uh, kind of how you moved from the book project to the second one and then onwards to the new project? Yes, for my, well, past project now, <laughs> since I started a new one. So my past project was about uh, teenage sexuality and really builds on my female doctor project because one of the 
I would say, gap within my book is how, from the 50s and 60s, women doctors would actually try to expand the provision of birth control for young unmarried women. And I became very interested in that, how you know they, they advocate for contraception for teenagers. So I started to get into this topic and look at the materials that were available in Britain, and I found lots of material on that. So my new book, which will come out, I hope, next year, is about the history of the Brooke Advisory Center, mm-hmm. the first center targeting young people and providing contraceptive advice and devices, as well as pregnancy counseling and psychosexual counseling. And then within my work with Brooke, I started to realize that, you know, I've been looking at birth control from different perspectives, gender, age, and what about race? Mm. So my new project builds on this gap again and expanded to look at the way that sexual and reproductive health charities were racialized in the 60s and how this racialization was denounced by uh, activists which were usually in connection with the transnational movement of black activists and how this nourished their you know, perspective on that. And also the way that um, those activists set up specific uh, dedicated sexual and reproductive health charities for minoritized people. Right. It's kind of like the missing link because, you know, there's been lots of work recently on the reproductive justice movement in the United States and also, you know, more work on on the global family planning movement and the global population control and kind of critiques of that. So to me, that's almost like the, yeah, how this also happened within Europe. Uh, exactly. Around marginalized kind of mm-hmm. populations within now, I have to ask you, I know it's always the tricky question for historians, but of course we live, we're you know, currently in a context of kind of um, backwards movement around reproductive rights internationally, uh, in Poland, in the United States, in places where we see you know, increasing restrictions around abortion, a sort of general backlash against, against feminism and, and the, even the concept of gender. And I wonder if you see anything from this kind of story that you're, you've been tracing now through all of these different projects that maybe connects to our understanding of the present politics of reproduction. I mean, what can we maybe learn from, from looking at these past actors? Well, I think in terms of campaigning strategies mm-hmm. and what was successful to succeed in legal changes. There is a lot to learn from the 70s and 80s, especially in Britain around, you know, the provision of birth control, um, the Abortion Act in 1967, the role activists played in passing this legislation and the sort of like tactics they developed and the alliances they formed, how important it is to have lots of backup from different organizations and having like a coalition of people interesting and defending from the same voice and the same perspective. And I think that's key for make like a big political and legislative change. So I would say that's one of the main things that we can look at at the moment in this context where we have a lot of uh, resistance to reproductive rights and also learning from black women activists, how they gathered together, they denounced what was going on, and they tried to forge their own sexual and reproductive health charities. And, you know, like giving hope that even in darkest time, mm. we can find ways of still providing efficient and human services to everyone. Yeah, and it, I mean, it gives you, a, the book really gives you the sense of kind of all the work that that goes into these kinds of movements, that that kind of daily labor of, of these women activists. And, uh, and yeah, also like what can be going on maybe behind the scenes mm-hmm. of a con- seemingly conservative 
movement. I mean, it always just strikes me that birth control is just in some ways inherently radical in this period, that just regardless of the rhetoric or the, the wider debates, just the the ability to control your own reproduction could just be yeah, it's such radical, a, exactly. right? Exactly. Empowering, liberating, and yeah. radical. Yeah. yeah, because you always have... I think you always have conservative lobbies fighting mm-hmm. this idea, and I think we will always have conservative lobbies fighting mm-hmm. this idea because it's so much connected to the idea of life mm-hmm. and when a fetus is, you know, human, blah blah blah, all of those deba- debates around that that I won't, I don't want to get into. But yeah. just to say, it's so much connected to what people feels that matter for them. Mm-hmm. I remember having a colleague, Trent McNamara, who uh-huh, published a yes. book yeah, yeah, about, you know, how this religious spirit. Without calling it a religion, but how our ideas of what we are in this world can influence our perception of birth control and the connection with the cosmos. And I found it so interesting. Yeah, there's these bigger questions exactly. at, at hand. And then at the, on the other hand, we always have to balance that with an understanding of the course of potential of of birth control and, you know, the ability as... as yes, and what as do we saying. consider as rights? What are rights... If it's a right that needs to be protected, how we implement legisla- legislation to protect those rights? Yeah, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> I guess we won't. I guess we won't solve it right now. <laughs> um, yeah. So my very last question is just whether there's anything. I mean, you already kind of mentioned it, but if there's anything that you didn't get to talk about in the book um, that you would have kind of, if you could go back and, and add in, uh, if you might might have discussed and and why, or is it all being now taken up by your new projects? Well, I think yes, the new project will address some of the gap, especially around race, and also about contraceptive technologies mm-hmm. as could be as much a device of empowerment mm-hmm. as a device of coercion. And I think that's something I didn't reflect enough mm-hmm. inside my book, that for some women, you know, the pill was liberating, whereas for some it was already quite uh, diminishing their liberty to say no to men, for instance. That's right. an argument that came back again and again. Or IUDs that could help a lot of women who just didn't, you know, uh, support the pill then IUDs was empowering for them, whereas it's been denounced as a population policy mm-hmm. uh, with like an idea of, you know, restraining certain type of, of women to have children or this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think my last interview was with um, uh, Crystal Littlejohn, who did a book on just saying, uh, just get on the pill, which is this yes. kind of like how the pill can become and so I, I think it's really interesting this conversation between kind of contemporary sociology and history of how did we get to this point where these technologies have these different meanings yeah, exactly. and, and how did that become embedded and we can kind of tell that story um, up to you know the recent past and yeah. then they, they kind of take it on um, okay well I think we should probably stop there unless there's anything else you want to add no thank you so much Nicole okay <laughs> thanks very much